You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I want to start a series on the book of Revelation. I want you to notice the book of Revelation is called the Revelation, not the confusion. The word revelation comes from the Greek word, which means disclosure. It comes from from the root word of the Greek word disclosure. means to take off the cover or to reveal. So many times people, Christians, know less about the book of Revelation than they do anything else. Now let me ask you a question. What book do you read up until the last chapter and then put away? What movie do you go to and walk out before the climax? Well, we wouldn't think about doing that, would we? But that's exactly what, the, what much of the church world does. And they, in my opinion, cop out by saying, well, you know, there's so many different ideas. Prophecy teachers disagree about what things mean and how things are going to go and so forth. So if they can't understand it, how can I expect to understand it? But folks, let me ask you this. Didn't God make the rest of the word simple enough for us to understand? Why then would he come to the last chapter, the last book of the Bible that he was going to leave for us and say, well, I'm going to mess him up on this one. I'll confuse him big time. He wouldn't. Let's start in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in the heading of my Bible, it says the revelation of St. John the Divine. That's the title that man put on the book. But here's the title that God put on the book. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, this was written in about 95 A.D. You do the math. If it was shortly then, what is it now? Which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. This is God revealing to John and therefore to the church what he wants us to know about Jesus. It is not the revelation of the Antichrist. The book is not the revelation about the tribulation. It's the revelation of Jesus. You're going to find as we go through this thing that the biggest part of the book is showing what a failure and a flop the devil is with the Antichrist and the beast and all that other kind of stuff that he can, everything that he uses to thwart God's purpose. You're going to find out that everything the devil does fails miserably because of Jesus. The revelation is that Jesus is the victor. The revelation is that God's plan and God's purpose is accomplished. Nothing to be afraid of in the book of Revelation. Nothing to be afraid of that's described in the book of Revelation. Verse 2, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and that hear these words of the, of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Now, let me ask you a question. 
if Jesus revealed, the Holy Ghost revealed to John for the purpose of writing to the church, that the people who hear the words of this prophecy are blessed and those that keep the words that are written therein are blessed, how can you keep what you don't know is there? We need to know what the book of Revelation is about. You need to know what the book of Revelation is about just as much as any other book that was written. There's no New Testament book that has one greater significance or any greater significance over another. You need to be aware of what the book of Revelation talks about. Well, if God expects us to keep it, if the blessing is attached to the keeping of these things that are written therein, why would he hide from us the things that he's telling us that he revealed? He wouldn't. I'll tell you what I think is going on, and that is the devil, through religion, through churchanity instead of Christianity, has kept the book of Revelation hidden from most of the church world because he doesn't want the church world to know what a failure he's going to be at the end. John, verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be to you and peace from him which, was, which is and which was and it which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the king of the, of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. Notice that phrase is mentioned twice, once in verse 4 and again in verse 8. The Lord which is and which was and which is to come. What does that tell us? It tells us that the book of Revelation is going to cover three periods. Things that came before, things that are present, and things that are to come. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's describing that he's in the midst of his exile. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. I want you to notice something, folks. John is in exile in Patmos. There's some historical evidence in a lot of church tradition that tells us the reason that he was exiled is because uh, Caesar, I believe it was Domitian at the time, couldn't kill him. Tradition tells us that they put John in a a vat of boiling oil and he didn't die. So finally, Caesar decided that he didn't want to deal with this guy anymore, so he sent him to the Isle of Patmos. He exiled him. Now, a lot of people would consider that to be a hardship, and I'm sure in many ways it was. 
there was uh, there was no prison system. There was no care for the prisoners. Everybody was on their own. A lot of people died from starvation and from wild beasts and so forth on the Isle of Patmos. But notice how John treated his adversity. A lot of people treat hard places as times where they pull away from God. But John, in exile, said that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. John didn't stop watching. He didn't stop praying. He didn't stop worshiping God or serving God in any way whatsoever. Should that not be a good example for us to follow? There's a lot of fair weather Christians out there. There's a lot of people that will worship God as long as things are going well for them. But how many people do we know of that have turned away from God because things went against what they wanted them to go? God never promised us comfortable circumstances. But he promised us victory over those circumstances. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice. Now notice he identifies the voice or describes the voice as a trumpet. You're going to see that again and again. Heard a great voice as of a trumpet. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega and write down what you saw and send it to the churches. Verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the pouch with a golden girdle. Now I want you to notice what John says. John was one of the closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Probably the closest one of all the disciples. And he says it looked like Jesus. Boy, there was a difference. Talks about his clothing. Verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as flames of fire. He looked like Jesus, but boy, things really looked different too. And his feet likened to fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I felt that his feet is dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. He says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Here it is again. Time periods. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The chapters 2 and 3 talk about the seven letters to the church or the letters to the seven churches, I should say, I guess. And we talked about that. I think we covered that last fall in much greater detail than I want to take the time uh, that I would have the time to take during this lesson this series so I'm going to skip over those and get right to the prophecy if you want to know about the letters to the seven churches there's a series back there that covers it in great detail chapter 4 after the things that were told specifically to the seven churches 
John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. Here's that trumpet again. Talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now I want to go back and look at some things relative to uh, what the Holy Ghost revealed unto Paul. Turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to, certainly going to come back to Revelation chapter 4 in just a minute. But I want you to see the parallels, the perfect continuity between what the Holy Ghost revealed unto John and what the Holy Ghost revealed unto to Paul about the church. 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 13. Paul writes to the church and says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which are asleep. That means those that have died, those in the Lord that have died and gone home to be with with Jesus. That you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now, he didn't say don't be sorrowful over people's loved ones that go on. He said don't sorrow like the people that don't have any hope. There's a difference between sorrow and grief. You've got a loved one that, was, that didn't know the Lord. There's a grieving process to that because their eternity is set. But if we lose loved ones that did know Jesus, that died in the Lord, so to speak, then certainly we would be sorrowful for them leaving, but we wouldn't grieve because of where they went. Amen? Now, it's not up to me or you to determine what somebody else's level of sorrow or grief should be. But it's instruction given to the individual. For if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Now, let me make a statement here. There are two periods that are talked about Jesus returning to the earth. One is talked about and referred to as the coming of the Lord. The other is talked about as the day of the Lord. Two different events, two different points in time. Paul is talking about the coming of the Lord, which precedes the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord takes place at the end of the tribulation period. The coming of the Lord takes place before the tribulation period. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord means that this is what God has told us to tell you and that we, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep because to be absent with the Lord is uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They're in the presence of the Lord already. They've gone before us. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Now notice verse 16. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Now, what is that shout going to say? Jesus is going to appear in the sky and say, hey, look at here. 
So you're going to call out and say, I'm back. John tells us what he says. We just read it in Revelation chapter 4. He heard a voice behind him saying, come up here. See, what John describes in Revelation chapter 4, and we'll prove it in detail in just a minute. What John describes in Revelation chapter 4 is a type of the rapture. Now, he's already in the spirit on the Lord's day, but he sees Jesus. He gets the letters to the seven churches or instructions to the seven churches that he writes down in letters. Jesus has already identified himself. He's already appeared to be seen with hair white as wool and feet and his eyes flames of fire and feet like shining brass, burning brass. He's seen all those things, but the only thing up to that point that has been revealed to John is what is the condition of the seven churches in Asia, what we would call Turkey. So he reveals to him what is. But remember the three, th- the three time periods that are going to be covered are things which were, which are, and which are to come. He gets caught up into heaven. The voice shouts, the voice sounding like a trumpet speaks to John and says, come up here. Well, where is it? Where is here? He's already in the spirit. He's already seeing a vision of Jesus. But he's seeing the vision on the earth. The voice says, come up here and I'll show you things to come. That's what the Bible says happens to what Paul was directed by the word of the Lord to tell us. There's coming a moment in time where you're going to hear a voice. It's going to say, come up here. Now, some people, bless their hearts, think the rapture is, is so that we'll have an, a, an escape mentality. And the word rapture is not in the scripture. And there are some teachings out there that say that the, the doctrine of the rapture started somewhere around the 1800s. Well, I don't know if that's when the word rapture started being used or not. They might be right on that. I don't know. But the doctrine of being caught away being called up into heaven by the Lord and meeting him in the air. Started in about 62 AD when Paul wrote these words. Now what is this catching away or escaping supposed to do for us? Well, turn with me over to chapter 5 of First Thessalonians. What is it that we are to escape? Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, continuing the same thought, he hasn't changed subjects. He says, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. The times and the seasons about what? About being caught up into the air with the Lord. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. Now, here's one exception where the day of the Lord is not talking about the end of the tribulation, but it's talking about the rapture. We know it's an exception because he's still talking about the same subject. See, folks, we know the the beginning point of the tribulation. We know the first thing that starts the tribulation. The Bible tells us very specifically. So you know that if the tribulation lasts for seven years and you know the beginning point, you know how long it's going to last. The Bible says Jesus returns 
at the end of the seven days or seven years. And that's called the day of the Lord. Well, that could not be, that, that means that the day of the Lord cannot come as the thief in the night when God comes back in judgment. Anybody that can do the math can figure out when that's going to be. Well, what is unknown? What is spoken of as coming like a thief in the night, which means suddenly and unexpectedly when Jesus comes back for the church, when we hear the voice saying, come up here. So he says, you know yourselves that Jesus coming back for the church comes as the thief in the night. Nobody knows when that's going to be. But it gives you a hint. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now, um, have you noticed that all this stuff that's being done at the UN and against Israel is to bring peace to the Middle East? That's everybody's excuse, including our own Secretary of State. Thank God we'll be done with him in a few days. If that was the only benefit of this election, that'd be worth it. By the way, did you notice the, uh, one of the discoveries? Are you aware of one of the discoveries in Israel that took place this last year? They discovered a, a, a coin or a signet. Actually, it's a seal, I guess, more accurately described. That they've traced back and, and deciphered the writing to be from the time of Hezekiah. Now all this peace from the Middle East. Which everybody's idea of peace in the Middle East. Means take land away from the Jews. And give it back to the Arabs. Who used to own it. And were dispossessed by the Jews. That's the thought. That's this whole two state solution. Land for peace. Exchange and so forth. That's the, that's the basis of all of it. Well there's a problem with that now. Because the seal that has been discovered from Hezekiah's day has been dated to at least 200 years before any Arabs were ever known or ever claimed to have possession of the land. Now we know that the land belonged to the Jews a long time before that. But now there's historical evidence, proof that it belonged to the, to the Jews at least 200 years before any Arab has ever claimed that they possess the land. Now don't worry. That will be ignored by the national community. That will be treated as if it never happened. But folks expect in these last days. Expect more and more evidence to come, up, come out and be revealed. So that people that want to know the truth can see it. It's not to say that it will be accepted. Not to say that it will be acted on or anything good will come out of it. But more and more will be revealed. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as, it, uh, comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. This word escape is going to appear several times in the New Testament. It means to flee. But the root of this word is to vanish. Now, Paul is talking about the church being caught up into the air 
and being with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. He's talking about the church vanishing from the earth. It doesn't mean disappear. It doesn't mean all of a sudden, you know, like special effects in a movie, something just poof and it's gone. They'll get to see us go. But we will be gone. We'll be caught up into heaven where we can't be seen from this physical and natural realm. Now, what is it that we're, we're going to escape or vanish from? Well, skip down with me to verse 9. He talks about being ready and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and so forth. But skip down with me to verse 9. Here's why we're to put ourselves or clothe ourselves with righteousness. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Weymouth's translation says, God has not destined us to incur his anger. William's translation says, God has not appointed us to reap his wrath. New English Bible says, God has not destined us to the terrors of judgment. See, folks, the tribulation is called the wrath of Jacob. It's where God pours out his judgment upon the earth. And the Bible says specifically, Paul told us, by the word of the Lord, by the commandment of God. That the church is not appointed to reap God's wrath. What does that mean? That means the church has to leave before the tribulation can begin. Now, I always assumed growing up, I grew up in a Baptist church and we were big on the rapture. Scared as I ever was in church was an evangelist. Man, he was some kind of preacher. I have no idea what he talked about, but he was a preacher. He wore these flashy suits. His hair was slicked back. He wore more jewelry than any Baptist, Southern Baptist in my town had ever seen. He was preaching about the coming of Jesus one day, one night. And I'm sitting off to the side in the balcony. We you thought we were unseen up there. And all of a sudden he's preaching along and he stops and he goes, and just stood there silently for about five seconds. He said, I see him. Well, I'm looking and I don't see him. And that scared the bejeebers out of me. For those 15 seconds, however long he kept that going. And it was perfect. He went right into an altar call. Are you ready? Well, he got all those people that were saved that didn't see anything but scared half to death. Come down to the altar to make sure. So I grew up in the church that was big on the rapture, big on the rapture. Somehow, and I don't know if it was ever said or not, but somehow or another I had the idea that if the rapture occurred on Friday, then Saturday the tribulation began. And it may, go, it may work just that way. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that it has to. It's possible. I just throw this out for your consideration. I'm not sure... That this is the way it is. I'm not believing for it. I'm not believing in it. I'm just considering the possibilities. It's possible that the church could be gone for a period of time. To set things in order. For natural circumstances to align. To bring about the tribulation. I can see the possibility of the church being in heaven for a couple of years. Now, the Bible says that the only thing that's causing the Antichrist not to, be, uh, not to appear, not to be revealed now, 
is the presence of the church. What do you think this earth is going to look like in a, just a short period of time without the church to hold it together? You talk about things sliding downhill in a hurry. And it's possible that that's the way that it would be. I think, well, I'll speak for myself. I've kind of always assumed that things just keep going down and down and down and down and down and get worse and worse and worse. But some of those things getting worse and worse and worse might not line up with the glory of God that's predicted and prophesied, foretold, being seen on the earth. But if the glory of God is foretold and is takes place just the way the Bible says, and it will, and then the church vanishes, it wouldn't take long at all for the church to head into the gutter, for the world to head into the gutter, more so than we could ever imagine. Hope you see the point that I'm trying to make. I'm not trying to preach something as doctrine. I don't know. When we get to heaven, you can say, Pastor Mike, you were wrong. If I am. If I'm not, then be sure I'll search you out. (laughs) And say, remember when I said this? Verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as you also do. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's see something else Paul wrote to the church. Verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I've seen that as a slogan over nursery room doors at churches. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) You've never seen that? Where have you been? (laughs) Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I probably made a mistake because every time I read that verse, I think about that. And now I've done that to you too. (laughs) But we're all going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound. Notice that phrase again. The voice which sounds like a trumpet. You need to get that? <laughs> and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this, in, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption... And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Now I want you to see one other verse of scripture. You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. I'll just read it to you. But Jesus in Luke chapter 21, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've got two people John writing and Paul writing. Paul tells us in two different places. So there's two or three witnesses already that we've looked at, however you want to count them. But Jesus was also a witness of these things. 
And he was writing, to, uh, he was speaking to his disciples about the end times, and they were asking, when is this stuff going to happen, and how's, what's going to be the sign of your coming, and so forth. Jesus answers a number of things, but then he sums things up. Verse 34, Luke 21, verse 34, he said, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Here's that word escape again. The root it means to vanish. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So it's at least three witnesses, four if you count Paul twice. That there's coming a point in time where we're going to be called up from the earth. The voice which sounds like a trumpet is going to cry out and say, come up here. Come up here. Oh, what a day that's going to be. All right, let's go back to Revelation chapter 4 now. I'll start in verse 1 again. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must, hear, which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit... And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty elders, four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded thunders and lightnings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the seven, before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was like a sea of gra- there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes that before and beyond, behind. And the first beast was like a lion. The second beast like a calf. The third beast was like the face of a man. Had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now I want you to notice what Paul, what, uh, what's his name? John. Please notice what John sees. First thing he sees is he sees the throne of God. And he looks upon the one sitting on the throne. Contrast that with Moses asking to see God's glory in Exodus 33. You remember? He says, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord answers him and says, no man can look upon my face and live. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you and pass by. 
And I'll make you to see all my glory. My goodness passed by. You can look on my back parts. Notice there is no restriction. There is no hindrance. There is no hesitation. By the Lord when he calls John up. Sets him in the middle of heaven. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus. We are worthy. By his blood. To look on his face. Now what's the first thing John sees? Well the first thing he sees. Is the throne. He describes the throne. The rainbow like an emerald. And I'm sure he had difficulty. Describing a lot of these things. He did the best he could in his description. But I'm sure when we get there. We're going to say. Boy that description in Revelation. Didn't do it justice. He sees the four beasts. Now God must think these things look good. I, I don't know. They sound weird to us. And then he sees the 24 thrones. And upon the thrones are seated the 24 elders. Now what are the elders? Elders are always used as, as, a as a representative of man unto God and God unto man. Now there's two sets of 12 in the Bible that are prominent that we assume make up the 24 elders there were 12 tribes of israel in the old testament which represented god's people unto him and therefore god back unto the people and in the new testament jesus picked 12 apostles now think about what that means the 12th apostle uh, or the the replacement for judas after his betrayal is told us in Acts, the beginning of Acts. I think it was Matthias, wasn't it, that took his place? Now think about what that means. That means when John, who's caught up into heaven to see the things which will come hereafter, he sees the 24 elders. He's seeing himself. And surprisingly, it does not affect the space-time continuum. You know, and all the movies about time travel and all that kind of stuff. You got to be careful. You can't see yourself in the future or in the past. But John does. Notice what else he sees. He sees the sea of glass. Like unto crystal. He describes it as crystal. Mingled with fire. Notice what else he sees. He sees the seven spirits of God. Now let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 11. I want to point a couple of things out to you here. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll just start in verse 1. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and his branch shall grow out of his roots. This is talking about Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him a quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall judge the poor. Now this is the only place that I'm aware of. In years of study. That there are seven spirits. Specific characteristics of the spirit of God. That are identified upon Jesus. Now we know that the Bible tells us that Jesus had the spirit without measure. If he had the spirit without measure, certainly the Bible includes that these things were upon him. The spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, 
the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, if that's the spirit without measure, and if that's what's identified by the seven spirits of God, let me ask you a question. Where does the church have to be if the Holy Ghost is in heaven in full manifestation? Jesus said to the church, said to his disciples concerning the church, he said, and I will give you another comforter, which will abide with you for a while, which will abide with you forever. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So if the Holy Ghost is in heaven when John appears in full manifestation, is it possible that the church is left on the earth? Not unless Jesus lied. If Jesus said he'll never leave you nor forsake you and he'll abide with you forever, then that means wherever the Holy Ghost is in full manifestation, that's where the church has to be. Here's another proof that the church is in heaven. The next thing that it speaks of that I'll point out is the sea of glass like unto crystal. Crystal is the only substance known to man that cannot hide a flaw. In fact, it magnifies any flaws. Now, that's not true of diamonds. It's not true of any other substance. You can hide flaws in diamonds by the way you cut them. But not crystal. Crystal magnifies flaws. The Bible says Jesus is coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. Now, in Second Peter, Peter talks about those that are blemishes or spots in their feast, church services. And if you look at what he talks about, there were people that were trying to draw attention to themselves by claiming to be spiritual for the purpose of drawing people after themselves. But in heaven, there won't be any of that. Thank God for that. Everybody's hearts and everybody's motives will be pure. No flaws. And another thing it says is mingled with fire, the sea of glass mingled with fire. What does that indicate to us? Well, mingled with fire just simply means this. The sea of glass, which is the church, was produced by the Holy Ghost, the fire of the Spirit of God. Jesus said, or John the Baptist said, excuse me, there's one coming after you, there's one coming after me, he said, that will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, anytime, this is true in, in all Scripture, from the beginning to the end. Anytime a sea is spoken of that doesn't describe what sea it's talking about, it always refers to a group or a crowd of people. So when John says he sees the sea of glass, since he's not talking about the Mediterranean Sea, he's not talking about the Aegean Sea, he's not talking about any other named body of water, then this sea of glass has to represent people. So what do we see? We see that the 24 elders, which is the completion of God's representation of himself to his people, are there. We see that the Holy Ghost is there in his perfect, full manifestation. And he can't leave the church. And we see that there's a, a, a sea described that is without flaw and is the product of fire. You put these things together with what Paul told us about not being appointed to to endure God's wrath or the terrors of judgment. And I don't see how you can come up with any other explanation 
except that the church is in the presence of heaven before any of the seals of the tribulation are opened. Now, here's why this is important. I want to read to you from a, a prophecy of Smith Wordsworth in 1939. Now, there's a lot of things. Wordsworth is somebody you've heard me talk about on occasion. There were a lot of things that were spoken of and attributed to Wigglesworth that can't be proven. It's almost like everybody took the, the power of God that was on display in his life and in his ministry. And after he died, they attributed it to whatever doctrine or belief they were involved in or supporting, promoting, and tried to give it credibility from him. So there's a lot of things, a lot of things, particularly prophecies, that Wigglesworth, that cannot be traced back to Wigglesworth, legitimately traced back. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't say some things, but without proof, there's no way to know. But I want to read to you something that was told personally by Lester Sumrall. He was a man I was acquainted with somewhat toward the end of his life. And he was a man of great integrity. So let me read this to you. In 1939, World War II was about to break out. Lester Summerall was in his 20s. He was working in a Bible school in England, and he got to know Smith Wigglesworth. He had read his books and heard about his ministry. And so he had been going over and visiting Smith Wigglesworth in his home for several years. Every other week, he'd visit him. Wigglesworth would also have Brother Summerall to speak at his convention sometimes. One day, Lester Summerall went to tell Wigglesworth that a police officer had come to his door and told him that everyone who was not an English citizen would have to leave the country. Hitler was threatening to come across the English Channel, so all foreigners had to leave. The young Summerall explained to the elder minister, I came to say goodbye to you. I appreciate all that you've put in me. Now, here was a young minister in his 20s, and here was a man in his 80s who wanted to give his gift to somebody. By the way, Wigglesworth died in 1947, so he would have been about 80 years old at this point. Wigglesworth told the young minister, I want to bless you. So he held him and said, Lord, everything that I have, bless him with it. Give it to him. Wigglesworth started weeping as he pulled Brother Summerall in closer. Brother Summerall said he was a big man, and as he held me close to him, his tears rolled off his face. And that hit me in the face. Wigglesworth cried saying, I probably won't see you again now. My job is almost finished. Well, eight years later, he was gone. As he continued to pray, he cried, I see it. I see it. Brother Summerall asked, what do you see? What do you see? He said, I see a healing revival coming right after World War II. It'll be so easy to get people healed. I see it. I see it. I won't be here for it, but you will be. And there was a healing revival right after the war. It lasted from 1947 to 1958. Oral Robertson T.O. and uh, William Branham were the most prominent ministers in that healing revival, although there were numerous others that were used. Wigglesworth continued to prophesy, I see another one. I see people of all different denominations being filled with the Spirit. That was the charismatic revival. God raised up people during that era like the full gospel businessman. It started about 1967 and it went through its heyday and uh, through 1978. There were people like Catherine Kuhlman that were used greatly in that 
revival. But in some degree, at least, that revival is still going on now. It affected the Catholic Church in a great, great way. Wigglesworth continued, I see another move of God. I see auditoriums full of people coming with notebooks. There will be a wave of teaching on faith and healing. We did experience that wave, he saw, and we call it the Word of Faith movement. Lasted from about 1989. And they will bring the sick to churches where they allow the Holy Ghost to move. Let me read to you from Rome, from uh, James chapter 5. Verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. It's talking about the rapture. It's talking about Jesus coming back for the church. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth. We know he's waiting because he hadn't come yet. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. And has long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And notice what it says will bring about this precious fruit of the earth. Notice what Jesus is waiting for. Notice what has to happen before Jesus can come. That which is referred to as the early and the latter rain. The early and the latter rain. Now rain is always used in the Bible as a type of the Holy Ghost. When it's used figuratively, it's always used as a type of the Holy Ghost. So he's saying that there's a move of the Spirit of God that is necessary to bring about this precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is waiting to receive before he comes back for the church. Now, what would the precious fruit of the earth be if not the harvest of people? That's the only thing God's ever cared about. God's not waiting for churches to buy property. Jesus isn't waiting for the church to get their finances in order. He's waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. The only thing he cares about is people. And notice, thank God for church programs at work. Thank God for church outreaches. But notice the thing that will bring about the precious fruit of the earth is not a church outreach or a church program. It's the precious fruit. Of the, uh, it's the latter rain. It's the moving of the Holy Ghost. It's the moving of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what Wigglesworth prophesied. Let me read to you from some other scriptures. If you've been around here very long, you'll be familiar with them. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations shall come. Now, if you think about the wicked, the desire of all nations doesn't have anything to do with God or Jesus coming back. But what is he talking about? Let me read to you from from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes to the church and says, For the earnest expectation of the creature, this word creature is the word creation. It's the earth. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The word manifestation means revealing. It means removing of a cover. It's the same word that's used in Revelation 1.1 where it talks about the revelation of Jesus. For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly. The word vanity is moral depravity. Not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Now, Adam's the one that subjected it. Thank God there's hope. Because the creation itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, same word creature, in the previous verses is translated creation in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. It says the earth is in turmoil. The earth is in travail. For a specific purpose or until a specific time. And that specific time is identified as the manifestation of the revealing of the sons of God. Now that's what Haggai chapter 2 is talking about. That's telling us the condition of the, of the church just before Jesus comes back. Let me read again from Haggai chapter 2. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while... And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. That manifestation of the sons of God shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, that's what the church would look like if we were all operating like Jesus, wouldn't it? And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, whatever you want to think about this, folks, I've heard some goofy things taught. Perhaps you have too. And some of the goofiness that's, that's out there causes me to draw back from certain things. I want to make sure that I'm not even close to the edge of goofy. So I'm going to leave it up to you. Whatever you think is the reason God attached the silver and gold to the glory of God being revealed in the last days... You decide for yourself. I know what I think about it. It's the reason why I speak and declare spectacular increase. It's the reason why I'm looking for the wealth of the wicked to be laid up for the just. The silver and gold is mine, saith the Lord. The glory of this latter house, the last days of the church, shall be greater than of the former, the first days of the church, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace the lord drew to my attention that last phrase in this place will i give peace that could be an indication you again you decide for yourself you judge it you get the holy ghost just like i do but it could be an indication that it's the only place on this earth that will be peaceful it would certainly stand to reason that the peace of the church is going to be in contrast With what's going on in the world. At least that makes sense doesn't it? 
What are we to do? Well, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. The margin of my Bible says lightnings. It's talking about a display of his power and a manifestation of his presence. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain, outpourings of the Spirit of God. What would that be? Well, the outpourings of the Spirit of God would certainly include, I'm not going to say this is all that it is, but it would certainly include outpourings of the gifts of the Spirit. Revelation gifts. Power gifts. Utterance gifts. Special faith. Working of miracles. Discerning of spirits and such. Gifts of healings. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. There's a specific time for it to take place. So the Lord shall make bright clouds, a display of his power and a manifestation of his presence, and give them showers of rain, outpourings of the Holy Ghost, to every one grass in the field. This grass in the field has got to be talking about the precious fruit of the earth, doesn't it? See, folks, it all fits together. For us, the message for us today, before we get into the things that will happen during the tribulation period, and not just the tribulation, but what will the church will experience in heaven during the tribulation time period. The message for us today is that there's a work, a great work, a mighty work, a supernatural work to be done before Jesus comes back. But we've got to want it. Remember what Jesus said? He said, don't get distracted by the things of the world and the cares of this earth. King James says, don't let your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. I'm glad he made it as confusing as possible. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Don't get so caught up in the things of the world that you forget that we're a church. That's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one way God can operate in this earth and that's through his body. Because Jesus is not here anymore. The head is in heaven. The body, not the head, has authority on the earth. His work can only be done through you and me. Amen. I wonder how close we were. Well, in 95 AD, Jesus said these things will shortly come to pass. If it was shortly back then, we may be within minutes as far as God's timetable is concerned. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe the glory of God will be seen for a period of time on the earth. I don't believe it will just be for a week or for a month. I believe the glory of God. I believe we're coming into a, a, a place where the glory of God will be revealed, seen, and known for a period of time so that the whole world knows what God is doing to his church. But no man can say how long that time would be. I think we need to be ready at any moment. But I'm not so much looking for Jesus to split the sky. I'm looking for the Holy Ghost to pour out the rain. Now once the rain starts, oh dear Lord. I'll spend every moment listening for the voice to come up here. But I'm looking for the rain. Amen.
Let's all stand together. But folks, I have two things I want to do before we go today. Number one, I think I would be doing a disservice to everyone to not ask the question, if Jesus came back today, would you be ready? See, here's the danger about talking about the glory of God in the latter rain. It makes people think they have time before they have to decide. And nothing could be further from the truth. Eternity needs to be established for every person today, now. The idea that you might want to take a little bit more time and think this through. I wonder how many people will miss heaven because they were thinking things through. So here's the question. Are you ready? If he came today, would you be caught up with him in the clouds? Would you meet him in the air? Well, I don't know, Pastor Mike. How can I know for sure? The Bible says the only way to know for sure is to make Jesus the Lord of your life. The question then becomes this. Can you point to a specific moment in time where you know that you know that you know that you made Jesus your Lord and Savior? It's not enough just to believe he came to the earth. It's not enough just to believe he died on the cross. You've got to choose to make that yours by confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Amen. So if you're here this morning and would say, some of you are thinking, Pastor Mike, you forgot to tell us to close our eyes and bow our heads. No, I didn't. Jesus is coming back in full view of the world. Well, in full view of the world, we ought to be able to confess him as our Savior. So here's the question for everyone that's here. Do you know that there's a specific moment in time that you can point back to and say, that's when I made Jesus my Lord. That's when I made God my Father. If you can't, and you want to do that today, I want to ask you to lift your hand right where you are. We'll lead you in a prayer and show you how easy that is to do. God made it hard. None of us would get in. So he made it easy. Is there anyone anywhere that would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to know for sure that when this world is over, when Jesus comes back, I'll go with him to be in heaven. Anyone? All right. Here's the second thing that we need to do. We need to be doers of the word. Zechariah 10.1 says, Ask ye of the Lord reign in the time of the latter reign. Well, if this isn't the time, when would it be? So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and say this after me. Repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you in obedience to your word for the reign of God. We ask you for a moving of the Spirit of God in power gifts in revelation gifts and in utterance gifts. We ask you to give us the spirit of boldness by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done 
In the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Father, send the rain. Send the rain, Lord. In Jesus' name. Now, Lord, we know to ask in this manner because your word says to. But your word also says that the Holy Ghost will help us to pray in ways that we don't know how to pray like we ought to know. So, Holy Spirit, we ask you to give us utterance in other tongues that we might pray the perfect will of the Father concerning the latter rain and the glory of God. Oh, Father, thank you for the rain. Thank you that you hear us always because we pray according to your word by the Holy Ghost. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for your glory being made manifest on the earth. We declare, Father, even as your word says, that the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of your glory. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen. There's one last thing, one last, well, one last point, one last thing I want to say. And that is this. You have to school yourself to pray for the latter rain. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come because your flesh wants it. It's something you have to school yourself into doing. It's something that comes, the desire grows. The more you pray, the more the desire will grow. Now here's the, here's the reason that I'm saying that, and I want you to consider this. And I don't mean this as criticism toward anybody. But we all know that we're living in the last days. We all know that things are happening around us in such a way that has never happened before in the history of the world. In my opinion, you judge this for yourself. But the only thing left to be done before Jesus can come back is the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the precious fruit of the earth coming forth. So knowing that we live in these times, knowing what the plan and purpose of God is, knowing what God wants to do, if we can't pray for the rain, what in the world can we pray for? If God's not an important enough part of our life, to pray for people to avoid hell for eternity, then what in the world can we pray for? 
I understand people are under financial trouble, financial pressure. Well, believe God and move on. Continuing to think about your finances or your physical condition or your adversities or whatever, it doesn't make it work. The Bible says Jesus paid for our well-being physically and financially. He said we can have what we say. So let's declare it and move on to something else. Do you understand what I mean? Don't let the things of this world, even your own hardships, even your own troubles that you're in, take you away from the things that are most important. Don't let them keep you from watching and praying like Jesus said. It's the only thing Jesus said would count us worthy of escape. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not saying only the people that watch and pray will escape. He said those are the ones that will be worthy to escape. So pray for the rain. Pray for the rain. Do it every day. doesn't have to be long every day, but start off with something. Pray for the rain. I'm praying for the glory of God in this church. I believe the prophecy of Wigglesworth. I believe in the integrity of Lester Summerall who told it to us. I believe there will come a time where the sick will be brought in by truckloads to churches that know the name of Jesus. I want us to be one of those places. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now say this before you go. Thank God for the reign of the Holy Ghost. And the glory of God being manifest. Amen. 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 God bless you. You're dismissed.